uh, Christmas. You know, there was this one Christmas where he was unemployed. He wasn't a big spender of things. Uh, he didn't spend a lot of money on, on, on things for himself, but he had this stamp collection that he was really proud of and had worked really hard. And that was back you know, long before eBay and the internet and stuff. So he had acquired uh, one of the most popular uh, postage stamps you can get is a Graf Zeppelin. There came a Christmas <clears throat> where he uh, had become unemployed. Of course, the kids, we, we all had no idea what was going on. We were in a day trip to Knoxville, which was a pretty common thing that we did. I realized <clears throat> that dad was selling that postage collection, stamp collection. And I was just like, what are you, what are you doing selling that stamp collection? And, and he was just like, oh, there are things I love more than postage stamps, you know? And and it never even really occurred to me what was really happening. It was just like, oh, okay, Dad's tired of stamps. So, My name is Yavitsa Djurjevic, and I'm the host of the Road Less Babble podcast. On this show, I interview everyday people who have some amazing stories and wisdom to share. Whether it's a story about an epic journey or some words of wisdom from a sage old man, we've got something for you. So pull up a seat, take a listen, and let us babble our way into your weekly podcast rotation. Cool. Michael, welcome. Um, got Michael Collins here with me and, um, I'll let you introduce yourself, but I always like to ask, you know, why, why are you on a podcast with a guy whose name you can't pronounce? What's your story? What's the 10,000 foot view? Well, um, that, uh, one, one could argue it's because you've run out of good quality content. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I, I think I'm on here because, uh, you, you kind of saw my story and thought it was interesting. Um, I have, uh, really a a varied background and um the two things that are most you know diametrically opposed are that for a number of years and uh with less frequency i was a humor columnist and then uh also for a number of years and still uh currently i was a, a chief financial officer of a medical services agency in knoxville tennessee where we provide uh, services for adults with intellectual de- uh, and developmental disabilities. So, so those things, you know, typically don't line up with each other. You don't see, I guess, a lot of CFOs that also do a humor column. And uh, I guess, uh, I guess it is kind of an interesting thing. So I suppose that's why I'm here to tell that story. It's a super interesting thing because I've gotten to the point where I can sniff out good stories at this point. I, I can just tell. Um, so the humor column is the first thing that got my attention. Now, Sir Thomas Center, which is where you're the CFO, I was already aware of what you guys did. Yeah. Uh, just due to the fact that I went to college in Knoxville and I have a yeah. decent understanding of the business community. Um, so that was a, almost like a cherry on the top. But as soon and this is not an <laughs> this is not an insult in any any stretch to CFOs. I'm not trying to make this sound in a mean way. You and I talked about this before we started recording. Yeah. But CFOs tend to be debits and credits, folks. Yes. Right? That doesn't yeah. mean they're not funny. It just means that they're probably the last person they're going to have a humor call. Well, they're, they're, they're typically not the person that you want to have a, a bubbly personality. You want them to be the, uh, the guy. You have to kind of be feared if you're a CFO. Yeah. And, um, you know, for me, it's a bit of an act, um, the being feared part. And I probably overdo it at times. But you do, you do kind of have to be feared and, and respected, you know. So that people understand there's there are limits to what mm-hmm. you can what you can get away with in an organization, you know. Um, but but yeah, um, you know, your typical your typical accounting uh, accounting type person is um, they're 
they're typically um, very businesslike, no nonsense, um, cut and dry, and uh, get the work done. And and I I am that to an extent, but I guess there's a creative side of me that that I have to find some um, avenue to to uh, release, and that's kind of where the the humor column fell in. So yeah. You said an interesting word that you just said you you have to be almost feared. And I, um, I really want to dig a little deeper into that. Like expand a little bit on specifically why you use the term feared. Cause I think well, that's- maybe um, feared might be a strong word, but I, I do use that word when I describe it. Um, it's uh, especially for me. Um, I really love people and I hate telling people no. And when you're in that role, um, you have to say no um, more often than you want to really. So so that it's uh, so managing to be feared is a little bit of a cowardly way to go about being a CFO. If you can, um, if you can make it a daunting task to come and make that hard ask, it can be uh, a little easier on you in the number of times you have to uh, make a denial. So, of course, yeah. the, the neatest thing in the world is when somebody comes to you with a great idea that's well worth the money, and uh, and you can say, absolutely, let's do this. You know, so yeah, like somebody random asking you to be on a podcast. Yeah, yeah, this, yeah, yeah. I'm not doing very good at my nose on things that uh, put me outside my comfort zone right now, for sure. So. Hey, but comfort zone is where you grow. That's the yeah. That's the fun it's part. True. True. Yeah. Well, and the and the humor column again that got my attention. I uh, I reached out to you on LinkedIn and I was like, look, man, I don't like you. Never have to talk to me ever again. But I I want to know what the story is here. Yeah. Um. So my my persistence finally pays off on something. <laughs> but yeah. um. I read the column that you, you received. I'll let you tell the story about it. It was mm-hmm. beautiful. Uh, the one where you received the award and you sent to me about, about your father yeah. and his stamp collection. Um, yeah. wasn't really, I mean, it was well-written, but it didn't strike me as a, as it's a, as funny. a funny column. Yeah. <laughs> but t- tell funny. the story behind that and I'll yeah. link it in well, the, in the show notes. I think people should read it. It is awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, well, it's, uh, you know, my dad was really important to me and, um, you know, he passed away when I was 20 years old, he had colon cancer and, uh, and, you know, kind of my adult life has been, um, every great moment has been tempered with, um, the realization that he's not there to experience it with me. So, so that's always been, a uh, always been a bit of a shadow over, over every great event, you know, the birth of a child, marriage, all these things. Um, but my dad really is where my humor came from. He was, I have no idea if there's genetic code that, that, uh, gives a person the ability to be funny. But, um, if there is, I got it from dad. He was, he was always a funny person and made us all laugh, kept the kids all laughing and, um, was just the life of the party. So, um, so growing up, you know, I, I guess I learned these things by osmosis, you know, comedic timing and when to crack a joke and how to use humor to deflect tension, those type of things. So so it was uh, it was pretty easy for me to fall into writing a column because sometimes a joke given verbally doesn't work. And <clears throat> it can be horrifying if you try your best to give this great joke and it falls flat or, or even worse, offend somebody. Well, with writing, there's a delete key. You know, there's even backspace. You can edit. My wife's a great editor. I have her edit everything I ever write. She's exceptional. And um, that gives you an opportunity to make sure that you've delivered it correctly. So so um, 
the opportunity presented itself. I guess it's been about, gosh, nine years ago now, something like that. Um, I started writing a column for a local newspaper and um, because I had this belief that I was this funny person, I called it a humor column. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I was awarded wittiest in high school, so I had something to back that, that misperception yeah. up. You know, I yeah. was, I was convinced I was funny. Um, it wasn't completely but, out of left field. No, it wasn't not entirely. Um, but but um, it's, you know, some of my best work, I think, was not funny. Um, and, and uh, you know, a few awards that I won came from columns that really, I think, touched people in a way where it was more of a remembrance of something or someone special. Um, there's another column I did about a barber that I had for years. And when I moved to Sphere County, <clears throat> excuse me. When I moved to Sphere County, I had I was about uh, 14 and uh, had lived over in Hamlin County, Morristown. And uh, we had a barber named uh, Mr. Ramsey downtown, and he had been there for decades, decades. And um, I started going to him with my dad and he was just a fixture in the community. And and I went away to college when I came back, he remembered me, all these things. So. So I wrote a column about him and it did really well. And his family was really you know, appreciative about it. And, um, but it was a, it was a memory column. You know, it was a, it was a memorial of, of, about someone. So that's kind of what the column is about my dad. Um, it's really my recognition of some of the sacrifices he made for us children um, in our youth that I did not recognize at the time. And it centers around, uh, Christmas, you know, there was this one Christmas where he was unemployed and he had this uh, stamp collection. He wasn't he wasn't a big spender of things. Uh, he didn't spend a lot of money on 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 things for himself. And, uh, you know, I was draw, drove an old beat up car and uh, never had fancy clothes, never had a big you know, TV. Of course, there weren't big TVs back in those days anyway. But um, but he had this stamp collection that he was really proud of and had worked really hard. And that was back. You know, long before eBay and the internet and stuff. So, so you really had to do some work to get stamps back then. You had to go to the, to the conventions. You had to scan the periodicals and track the stuff down and drive, you know, nobody shipped a stamp to you back then. You drove to get it. And, and he had, uh, he had acquired, uh, one of the most popular, uh, postage stamps you can get is a Graf Zeppelin. Um, or at least one of the most uh, desired by him. I think it is uh, one of the more one of the more popular ones. But um, he had acquired that stamp, and we all knew about it because it was such a big deal. Um, no idea what he paid for it, but it was probably hundreds of dollars. Very unlike him to spend that kind of money on something for himself. But uh, there came a Christmas <clears throat> where he. Uh, had become unemployed and uh, was unemployed for a few months and Christmas, you know, right around the corner. Of course, the kids, we, we all had no idea what was going on, no clue whatsoever. But uh, with Christmas right around the corner, now I can look back and realize that they were probably struggling uh, to make ends meet and really concerned about how they were going to manage Christmas. So, so we were um, we were in a day trip to Knoxville, which was a pretty common thing that we did. And um, I realized <clears throat> that dad was selling that postage collection, stamp collection. And I was just like, what are you, what are you doing selling that stamp collection? And, 
and he was just like, oh, there are things I love more than postage stamps, you know, and, and it never even really occurred to me what was really happening. It was just like, oh, okay, dad's tired of stamps. So um, it was years later, you know, when I was kind of having a struggle of my own around Christmas time that, that uh, I was thinking back and I was like, oh, that's what was going on, you know, and, and it was such this pro a profound moment of me going, I didn't, I, how did I not understand it? And yet I'm so thankful that I finally have recognized what happened, you know, because it really just was, I don't know, it was a kind of a monumental moment for me. And it was a, it was a neat way after he had been gone for many years to, to reconnect and find a new way to love him. So it's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. Well, it's so cool to look back at our parents in so many different ways and yes. their humanity. And, you know, I, I talked to you about, I've got my first kid on the way in January, which is, I think about, you know, that kid is going to look at me I'm, or my wife and I as, as superhumans. And we yeah. are very, very far from that. But I think one of the more like beautiful aspects of that story is when you think about it on its face, a stamp collection is, is, is somewhat silly. You know what I mean? Like it's not a, it's not the most serious thing in the world. Yes. But yeah. the amount of emotional attachment your father probably had. To I don't that think I'd tell a stamp collector that, but that's, well, that's between us. So yeah, <laughs> uh, fine. <laughs> a podcast is kind of silly. I don't know. Pick, pick something, uh, pick something else. The, yeah. the, the sports, whatever yeah. it, it's it, what I mean by that at the end of the day, it's not life or death. Yes, right? absolutely. Yeah. Um, but the amount of emotional en- attachment and energy your father had poured into something that he loved and then being willing to let go of that for his family, which he obviously loved more. Yeah. There was something in that story, man, the, the, I see why it won an award because you perfectly timed the emotional trigger of that. Like, because everybody can relate to some sort of sacrifice made for them by somebody. Yeah. And, and there's something so very human about that because at the end of the day, in a lot of ways, life is suffering. You know, life is beautiful. Don't get me wrong, but in a lot of ways, life is suffering. It is. We suffer yeah. through so many different events in our life. And the thing that makes us human is the fact that we're aware of our suffering <laughs> and the, and the yeah. fact that we are not in a constant state of anxiety about the fact that we're going to suffer is basically a miracle. It is. Um, it is. Yeah. So it just well makes said. it very, very cool and very, very, um, it was, it was just really moving the way it was written. So I would encourage everybody to go read it. It's beautiful. Well, thank you. I mean, that, that column means a lot to me. And, uh, you know, it's been, <clears throat> it's kind of been the, uh, uh, we'll call it my opus. You know, I don't, I don't think I, uh, if I write for the rest of my life, I don't think I'll ever write a column that means as much as that would do. So, yeah, it's yeah. awesome. Um, so to move forward a little bit, so you end up, you end up CFO of Sir Thomas Center. What'd you say about eight years ago? Yeah, it's been about eight years. Yeah. Okay. So eight years ago, you become the CFO of Sir Thomas Center, and your uh, what I found interesting was the story around how you ended, one why you ended up the CFO there, but two you also call yourself well, you and I grabbed lunch a couple of weeks ago the blue collar CFO, which yeah. I found interesting as well. So so tell the yeah. story behind that. How'd you end up the CFO there? Why do you call it yourself the blue collar CFO? Okay, okay. Well, um, so I went straight to college out of high school. <clears throat> My dad was still living, and um, my sophomore year, dad uh, was diagnosed with cancer and passed away um, shortly after my sophomore year. So um, at that time, I really had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, I had um, I, actually I wanted to be a radio DJ to start with. I was studying broadcasting 
and we've got a local DJ in Knoxville uh, named Phil Williams. You, you, you know Phil Williams, I'm sure. Um, you've heard of him uh, having been at UT, but but he uh, he was kind of my idol. He, he was a DJ in a rock and roll station for a while now. He's a talk radio host in Knoxville. And, uh, and I wanted to be a DJ, so I studied radio broadcasting in college my first, uh, first two years and met with a professor one day, and he said, what do you want to do? I said, I want to be a radio DJ. And he said, well, why do, you want to, why do you want to make minimum wage when you're going to college and spending all this money? I was like, what? They make minimum wage? <laughs> he said, if, if you're not a good one, they do. He said, you know, you, uh, the good ones make money elsewhere. They don't make it being the DJ. They make money doing the gigs and doing commercials and that kind of stuff. And I was like, oh, man. So, uh, so time that with uh, my dad passing the end of my sophomore year, and I didn't return to college. and uh, and floundered a bit about what I would do with my life and that kind of thing. Um, and ultimately just, uh, you know, I was always really good at math, even though I, I didn't seek a career originally in that. And my sister was a CPA and I just thought, well, you know what? I'll follow in her footsteps. I'm good at math and um, maybe make a go of it. And, and that's what I did. And I just, um, I made that decision that I was going to become a CPA and went, to, uh, went back to school did well, uh, graduated, passed the CPA exam, and actually started working for a pilot here in Knoxville. I was a financial analyst with Pilot for um, about six years and uh, learned a ton there. Just just learned a ton. So many smart people in that organization, and um, and um, in that time, my son <clears throat> was diagnosed with autism. He's now twenty. He's twenty today. He'll be. 21 in March, and he, uh, so he was diagnosed with autism. We struggled a bit to figure out what it was, but uh, at about two and a half, he was diagnosed with autism, and that really just created for me, it was kind of a paradigm shift of thinking. I, um, it changed my whole outlook on the world. You know, I'd had all these plans. I'd worked real hard in college. I wanted to work for a big corporation. You know, all these boxes I'd been checking that I wanted to accomplish. And I was, you know, right down the path of checking all these boxes that I had established in my plan for life. And, and here comes Jacob um, and just disrupted everything. Um, and I began to dabble in nonprofit work. Um, I joined the board of the Autism Society of East Tennessee and um, spent three years there. And uh, returned there again, probably, I guess, six or eight years later and continue to work uh, on their board and do volunteer events there. Um, I did some fundraising for an organization called the Organization for Autism Research. I recruited some buddies. I'm not a runner, but I recruited some bunnies that are runners and um, <clears throat> they helped me train for a half marathon and we raised I think it was around $6,000 towards research by running wow. a half marathon. And I use the word running very loosely. It was more like a fast walk. Um, but, but you did it. Uh, I did it. Yeah, I did it. And that's something I never, ever would have even considered if not for Jacob. Um, you know, I was a couch potato. And uh, so I just continued to experience all these uh, things that never would have come about if not for Jacob and meet all these people that I never would have met if not for Jacob. And, um, and I began to think, you know, what about, what about a different career because of Jacob? And, um, I, I 
saw an advertisement for the CFO of Sertoma Center, and um, I actually knew what they were, um, knew about them, and understood. Didn't know um, the details behind it, but I knew in general they provided services for adults with disabilities. So, so I applied, um, interviewed, got the position, and and started there eight years ago. And <clears throat> excuse me, it's been. It's been another great example of how um, Jacob has influenced my life in, in such an enormous way um, without even realizing it. You know, he, he, he steered me down this path and, you know, that whole list of checkboxes is just scratched out, thrown away now. You know, it's, it's garbage and I don't even have checkboxes anymore. I'm just kind of like, wherever we go is where we're going to go, you know. And, um, you know, I definitely... I definitely could have um, chosen a more lucrative career. Um, I'm not. I'm not broke. You know, not broke, and we we do fine. But, but um, you know, I'm, nobody at Sertoma is getting rich. Nobody yep. is there for the money. Nobody. Not not the CEO. Not the direct employees. Nobody is getting rich there. Um, it's a. It's more of a heart thing and a compassion thing and something that people feel passionate about and everyone that works there um, works there because um, yes, it does provide a paycheck, but it provides something a lot more than that, that uh, can't be measured with dollars. So, so, um, so that's how I ended up at Sertoma as a CFO and, uh, and have been fortunate to be there ever since and love the work, um, love, feeling like I'm part of a team making a difference in people's lives that might otherwise have um, not had somebody there to do that for them. And that's, that's really kind of where the blue collar piece comes into play. I, I I call myself a blue collar CFO because, um, and that's really, it's a bit unfair for me to, to label myself that and that kind of cavalier about it because everybody there is a bit blue collar. It's kind of the culture. Um, you know, our CEO was out the other day, uh, trimming hedges and, uh, putting mulch on the, uh, on the flower beds. So, so, so for me to sit here and go, I'm a blue collar CFO is, is, it's a bit hypocritical, uh, when you think about those kind of things too. But, um, but the reason I say that is because, um, I don't just sit in my office and, uh, and prepare financial statements, um, every month. Um, I actually go out. At Sertoma, we provide residential services. We have 33 homes in Knox County, and that's the main thing that we do. We also do a, 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 quite a few other things. We have job support services. We have a day program. We have community integrated services, all these things. But um, our biggest revenue source and the biggest program that we have is residential services, and that's where we own a home and provide that home for individuals with disabilities, and we provide staff that support them based on their level of need. Um, you know, we have some individuals that might be high functioning like my son um, that can feed themselves and bathe themselves and toilet on their own and those kind of things. We have other individuals that have um, much greater challenges. So, so whatever the level of need is, we meet it and, um, and help them grow um, in becoming more independent. So, so I actually go out and I work in two of those houses um, on a almost weekly basis. Uh, there's one house that I do work every week, another house that I have cut back a little bit now. 
but <clears throat> there are two gentlemen. I sent you a video about one of them. His name's Eric. He's uh, he's awesome. And I go and spend like I was there, there last night. I worked a six and a half hour shift last night with him. And um, I go and spend those six and a half hours with him. And and we we spend time. We'll talk. We'll watch uh, watch football. We'll you know go out and eat, do whatever he wants to do. And um, and it really is more like a friendship than it is work. But at the same time, it's it's moving our program forward and and our charitable purpose. And so it uh, it's a neat it's a neat thing to experience those things. Um, for me, you know, Eric's really high functioning. He's um, he's he's very independent, very independent. As you saw in the video, he has what's called enabling technology that allows him to live independently and even spend his evenings alone. Um, but uh, the other individual uh, that I provide services for is is less high functioning, a bit more of a challenge and um, doesn't have as much involvement from his family. And that's the one that really um, I think that's the one that's really special for me. I enjoy my time with Eric, but it's almost like that's for me. And I get the pleasure out of being there and experiencing him and engaging with him. And uh, and the other individual, I definitely get pleasure from being there. But um, for him, you know, we'll go we'll go see a movie and grab a burger. And his favorite thing on earth is a hamburger and a cheeseburger. And for him, that is his response to that is really just so overwhelmingly excited. It just it. In, in in one breath, it's um, it's just heartening and, and and encouraging to see that. And in another breath, it's kind of tragic to realize that um, he doesn't have the things that you and I take for granted, you know. Yeah. Um, and that is such a treat for him, and he's so grateful for it. It just really, in some ways, it kind of breaks your heart to think that <clears throat> that's that's the reality and. But at Sertoma, that's what we do. You know, we um, we improve their quality of life, and that's that's our goal is to do that through the course of their life. You know, we call we call the houses their forever homes because when we put an individual in that home, uh, it's our desire and our efforts will be focused around making sure that they <clears throat> live there throughout the uh, end of their life. And uh, yeah. and that's a challenge. That's a challenge, but uh, but we accomplish that more often than not. So. Mm. That's interesting. You know, the ability of you to, or everybody in your organization to quote, be the blue collar folks is really fascinating because there is a stereotype. There is a perception. There is a, once you're in the C-suite of whatever organization you're, you know, on this ivory tower. Yeah. And one of the things that I'd like for you to expand upon is you know, you said you had that checkbox and you obviously loved that checkbox, but then your son came along and you loved something mm -hmm. more than that checkbox. Um, how has he and his diagnosis maybe changed your leadership style? Um, yeah, or or helped you question. evolve? Yeah, that, there's no doubt that it has significantly. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, you know, Jacob... Uh, well, before Jacob came along, I didn't lack compassion, but um, 
I was very businesslike. Uh, I was I was kind of like what we talked about at the beginning. You know, I was I was very businesslike. I had these tasks and nothing was going to stop me from accomplishing them. And if I had to throw some elbows, I could do that. You know, it was no big deal. Um, with Jacob, it um, it truly has made me more of a more of a compassionate person, where I seek to understand and um, recognize that. Um, that everyone has challenges and everyone has strengths and weaknesses and um, it's helped me understand my strengths and weaknesses better. And it's helped me um, recognize that, um, that everyone has um, strengths and weaknesses and, and be a little more um, compassionate and understanding towards every person, you know, not just people with special needs, but every person. So, yeah. Yeah. That, that, that compassion muscle is such a, I'm not going to say it's just a, an art because there is a skill to it because I do think certain people just are more predisposed to it. Or, but the art aspect of it is something that you can train and that you can learn and that you can adjust. And um, it, it, it's just interesting because there are so many different ways, some, so many different routes somebody can go down once they reach a level of success um, that, you know, you can, you can end up in a space where you basically look down on the whole world, or you can look up, you can end up in a space where you look at it and say, Hey, I've got some gifts and talents that are a gift to me. Now, how can I make that gift to make those talents a gift to somebody else? Um, and, and bring some, bring some compassion into, into, you know, in this example, the workforce and, you know, there's a lot of different factors happening with this, like great resignation and people not being able to find jobs. And, but one of the big factors is like, employees have leverage and they're not going to put up with bosses that are, you know, Scrooge McDuck or, or, you know, the, the landlord from it's a wonderful life. Like it's just not going to happen. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, that's true. Um, you know, and we, um, you know, it'd be, it'd be dishonest to say that we haven't experienced a little bit of staffing losses, um, at Sertoma. I don't know if it's part of the great, um, resignation, one of the challenges we have there is, um, you know, we are we're funded by the state of Tennessee and Medicare, and um, and they build the model um, on on reimbursement. And their model says we're going to pay you this much for a service, and we're going to designate this much of it is how much you'll pay your staff to perform that service. And um, and right now, the, the the this much for the staff to be paid is twelve fifty, and that comes after an enormous raise. I mean, an absolutely enormous raise that the state implemented uh, in this new budget year started July first, and uh, prior to that, it was ten bucks an hour is what they what they paid. Um, now we don't have to pay ten bucks an hour at Sertoma. We can pay more than that, but we have to either fundraise, which we do. Uh, we have to be efficient with our expense controls, which we are, um, or uh, and we have to you know manage our finances and those uh, mm-hmm. those things. Unfortunately, they have a brilliant CFO that can that can handle it. <laughs> um, but um, so we can pay you know higher than uh, ten back then and higher than twelve fifty now uh, for many of our employees. Um, but we have to, that has to, that's our new floor. You know, 1250 mm-hmm. is our new floor when, when they make these changes. 
But the challenge for us is, um, you know, after you take that little piece out and then you're left with this, then you've got to cover, um, you've got to cover health insurance benefits. You've got to cover um, the cost of operating that home. You have to cover the fuel costs for a vehicle to get a person back and forth to work. And, you know, one of the individuals that we serve, you have to cover me. You have to cover all the overhead. You have to cover the electric bill at our, at our offices. Um, so, you know, by the time you shave and shave and shave and shave, there's just not much left. <coughs> so, so the reality is we can't be competitive in the open market because while we were cheering back in uh, May when they announced they were going to bump rate, uh, rates to 1250, um, those businesses around us that were already paying 1250 were bumping to 14, 14 yeah. and a half, $15 an hour. So, so, you know, for us, the playing field just went from there, there's our competitors and there we are, you know, instead of us still being left, you know, trailing even further behind. So, so while it felt great and for our existing staff, you know, the ones that would stay and continue to work there for $10 an hour because of their compassion and what they experience that's non-financial, um, the yeah. rewards that are non-financial to work at Sertoma. Um, it was a benefit for them and they were thrilled. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily help bring new people in the doors. And, you know, our, uh, I said our biggest program is a residential program and we need about 140 staff to be fully staffed in that department. And as of today and for the last, I guess about 10 months now, we're probably staffed at about 70. Um, so that means for every staff um they're working a ton of overtime and you've got people like me you know clowns like me coming out there and going well let me help out so i can be six hours here and seven hours there and so on and i'm not the only one you know uh, almost all of our case managers go out and work shifts um we have this mid-level mid-level managers um called residential coordinators their job is to <clears throat> excuse me their job is to schedule staff at the houses, go out and do inspections and maintain oversight. They're out working in the houses. Um, then we have our director of residential services and the senior director of residential services. They were both out working in the houses yesterday. In fact, our director of res residential services, I relieved when I went to work <laughs> in that house last night. So, so they're out, they're out doing this too. And, uh, and it's just a bit of, uh, kind of circling the wagons, you know, during this challenging time. But <clears throat> but we keep saying um, today we say $15 an hour is the number that we need from the state in order to be competitive with um, McDonald's. You know, we can compete with the other agencies in Knoxville like us that are under the same, yeah. under the same stresses and constraints, but we can't compete with McDonald's or Target or, you know, whomever else. And we're all shaking in our shoes you know they're building a big amazon facility where uh the old uh knox uh knoxville center mall east town really mall. yeah they've let and they're building an amazon distribution center there and mm. when that opens 15 dollars an hour you know for for everybody so we're terrified of what happens when that when that comes so well, and it's interesting because I saw a sign here in Nashville. Granted, Nashville's cost of living in Knoxville sure. are like two different planets. Yes. But yes. I'm pretty sure it was $18.50 starting at this Chick-fil-A. Wow. That's yeah. crazy. And the reality of it is you've got to pay for talent. Even though I mm -hmm. understand that 
for example, McDonald's is unskilled labor. Like you can pick mm-hmm. up any, anything there at any point in time. But I would argue you guys are, you might not need a degree, but like there is a, it's different. There's a very different skill set. Absolutely. Um, you Absolutely. are, you are <laughs> dealing with a human who yep. has problems that they need help with. Yep. Um, where you have to be able to not just like flip some burgers, but actually have some emotional intelligence and, and, you know, it's a choose your own adventure book at the end of the day, you got to make choices that lead you, you know, down one rabbit hole or another, this shift. Yeah. So, um, I hate that you guys are having that issue with, with the state and Medicare. And yeah, for our staff, um, you know, the rules are we can hire a person with, uh, just a high school diploma to do, um, it's called direct care. So you'll hear them referred to as DSPs, direct service providers, but they're the ones that do what I did last night with Eric. They're, they're there, they're hands-on, they're administering medications, they're providing any level of support you can imagine. And some, some are far easier than others. You know, I, I spend um, my nights with Eric receiving instructions from him on what he wants me to do, you know? Yeah. And there are others that you spend the entire evening lifting, turning to prevent bed sores, you're administering medications, you're using lifts, you're, um, sometimes there can be violent behavior. Um, we've had staff injured um, as a result of um, violent acts um, by individuals, you know, with, you know, um, and, and very understandable situations. So, um, so our argument to the state is always, um, why would um, someone come and work for us for uh, they got to pass a background check, a drug screen, um, and the background check is so extensive. Um, it takes weeks. Um, um, they have to have a high school diploma, clean driving record, all these things. And then we spend about two weeks training them, um, which costs us thousands of dollars. And then they go work in a house and they realize how incredibly difficult it can be. And they say to themselves, I can go make a dollar more an hour at McDonald's. Why don't I? And they do. Um, not everybody, but but often they do. And um, you know, there therein lies the challenge that we're faced with on a day to day basis. You know, we're we are tasked and contracted with the state of Tennessee and Medicare to provide um, life sustaining care for individuals that might not otherwise have anyone willing to do that. And uh, and at times it does feel like our hands are tied in trying to accomplish that goal. So it can be incredibly challenging. How far away are you from, because it sounds like you guys dodged a bullet by having the increase of pay from the state this, mm-hmm. this summer, because mm-hmm. if you hadn't, you, you're probably looking at, you know, 30 employees <laughs> instead of 70. Could be. Yeah. yeah it's it, cause that would be a huge discrepancy, but how far away in the battle do you feel like you are? Um, from a lobbying standpoint, from all the different ways, like to to catch up to, you know, I mean, if I know anything about the state, it's probably going to be hard to get anything in the next several years because they're going to say we just increased it. Well, uh, that's that's a possibility. Um, I actually I feel more optimistic right now than I ever have at Sertoma. Okay. Um, and just to give you a little more background, you know, we've we're we've always been short staffed. Um just never to the extent we are right now. A lot of it is COVID too. You know, we had um, during the heat of it at the initial onset of COVID, we had 
quarantined homes. We had staff with COVID. We had individuals with COVID. Lots of challenges like that. Um, but but the state, we have uh, some people that are definitely uh, definitely understand what's going on. And our legislators have so much to deal with. They can't be experts at everything. So yeah. Uh, it's uh, it's unfair for me to sit back and go, why can't you guys get what their problem is? You know, because they've got 600 other people in their office going, why can't you get what my problem is? Yeah. You know, yeah. so, uh, but we do have a few key legislators that do understand the challenges that we face. And um, they have actually done, uh, done a lot of the work that got us to 1250. And they speak openly about the desire to get us to 15 um, by 2024, I believe it is. Um, and I feel, you know, if if you had asked me, did I think something like that would happen six years ago? I would have said, nah, no, nah, there's no way. They just it just won't happen because we would we would go there and they dangle 50 cents in our face and then give us a 10 cent raise uh, mm. on those uh, wages. Um, but right now, I think that there's a very good possibility that we might be there um, by 2024. Um, or at the very least have a, a plan in place that tears it up over the next, you know, over the next three years or something. So, so I do feel hopeful about that and, uh, and it definitely will make things a little easier. That's awesome. Well, good to hear. I'm yeah. glad, I'm glad there's some <clears throat> light at the end of the tunnel on that front. Hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully. Well, and if any legislatures happen to listen, you should learn about Sertoma. Absolutely. Yes. Or if you, yeah, if you happen to be in the state of Tennessee and you want to send it to your legislator, yes, send them this podcast. Well. There you go. Yeah, yeah, they're, the legislators are very familiar with. Uh, we have a member organization in Tennessee there that agencies like Sertoma participate in. It's called Tenco, and okay. uh, you know, like everybody, um, you know, we have uh, we have paid lobbyists. Actually, we have two paid lobbyists that uh, that are on the hill routinely and and presenting our 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 needs to uh, our legislators and uh, they do a great job. So, so yeah, doors down. yes, exactly. Yeah. But, but I am very hopeful for the future and, uh, and how things may end up. I think I heard the state has, I believe it was about $1.6 billion left over in uh, federal funding that they're trying to figure out what to do with. And I was like, I've got some great ideas. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we could take about 40 or $50 million and uh, statewide, you know, uh, get us up to 15 an hour overnight. And that would be fantastic. But I don't know what will happen with those funds, but it would be nice. So. so let me, um, let me ask you this. We're coming up on time on the, on the podcast anyway, which sure. is, this has been super enjoyable, but if you had a magic wand and you could just wave that wand, and change one thing you've seen in business over your career to make life better for employers, employees, everybody. What would what what would you wave that magic wand for? Hmm. Make one thing. Well, I think it's it's ironic because this is not a problem or a challenge at Sertoma, <clears throat> but I think the distance between um, the baseline employees and the C level employees in terms of compensation and being connected in most businesses that that gap is so enormous personally i i despise it i think that um we've got a lot of of ceos and cfos that just make they make a lot more money than they really need to 
I mean, there's there's somebody out there on the yacht right now that's getting mad at me, you know. But, yeah. but the reality is, if you've got, if you're a billionaire and your baseline employees, in order to sustain themselves, are drawing on the taxpayers to supplement their income so that they can make ends meet, have food on their table, pay the rent, those types of things. I think there's a flaw in the design of the of your employment system. Yeah, don't worry. I, I doubt I'm going to get any billionaires on this podcast. Yeah. So, <laughs> nobody on a yacht streaming. Yeah, no, no, nobody, nobody on a yacht is like, yeah. hey, you guys, you guys. I'm uh, never downloading your podcast again. So. Yeah, it's like that. That that's fine. I've, I've, had, I've had plenty of people tell me it's like I hate your podcast. I'm like nobody's making you listen, dude. True. Nobody, yeah. nobody's <laughs> making you download it. If anything, you love it. Yeah. Um. Well, Michael, thanks for coming on. This was awesome. I really appreciate you, you sharing your story. Thank you. I and, appreciate the opportunity to come on and talk to you. So. And and like I said, I'm going to put some of the some of the stuff you sent me into the show notes. So if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, YouTube, wherever, you can just like click in the description and and go to the um, to the article he wrote about his dad and the stamp collection. You can actually your son did an entire uh, play about his alter yes. ego. That yes. is on YouTube that I watched last night. That was that was very entertaining. So you can check yeah. that out, see see what he's doing, and, and just some information about Sertoma in general. But let me ask you this. How can folks help Sertoma? How can people learn more about it? How can people get a hold of you? Like what's the what's the well, best way to approach that? The the best way is uh, you can go to Sertoma.com. Uh, we have a donate now button, uh, like all nonprofits do. Uh, or you can come, uh, you can reach out to um, I'm Michael at Sertoma, our director of uh, public uh, public relations and outreach um, and fundraising is Mike at Sertoma.com. Um, not confusing at all. Not confusing at all, but yeah. just simply M-I-K-E at Sertoma.com. You can reach out to him. Uh, if you wanted to volunteer, uh, you can come by and haul mulch. You know, our, CFO, our CEO would be thrilled to have about 20 other volunteers uh, carrying mulch out. If he asked me, I was like, dude, I've just got, you know, Got a lot of work to do today. So, but uh, but uh, you can you can volunteer to help us. You can donate. You know, donations are always critical and, and appreciated. Uh, we actually have coming up this weekend, Saturday night, we have our annual auction that uh, that is always a lot of fun. Um, I think probably the tables are just about sold out there, but uh, you can keep that in mind for future years. It's enormously popular in, in Knoxville, and uh, and lots of good items that they that they sell at auction there, and a, and a great dinner full of entertainment. So, so uh, but the the start would be to just go to sertoma.com, and uh, you can take a look at what we're about, what we do, and uh, make a donation. I might have to bring some work clothes next time I'm in Knoxville. Yes, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Um, no, that again, sertoma.com, go check it out, go donate, mm-hmm. go, um, if you happen to know any, uh, state reps or related to some or whatever, maybe, uh, bring it to their, to their attention. Um, Michael, thanks for coming on. This was awesome. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. I, I think this was super fun. I think that was super cool. I think people get a lot out of it. I'm glad you got to share the story for folks listening again, show description. You can find all the information. Um, workwithyov.com. That's workwithjov.com. And besides that, we'll talk to you guys soon.